Well, after a week off, we're returning to our series in the Gospel of Luke. And last time on Christmas Day, uh, we left off with chapter 2 in the significance of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the city of David, and the angel of the Lord's announcements to the shepherds outside that town that a new David, a very much greater uh, shepherd king who was both the promised Messiah and God come in the flesh had been born, and how the shepherds could find Israel's Messiah in that same town, that same city, Bethlehem. The sign given to those shepherds that they would find this infant son wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger anticipated not only uh, how Jesus would feed his people through his very life, I mean, he is the bread of heaven, but also, as you see at the end of Luke in chapter 23, it anticipated his death too. That is, Jesus was wrapped in linen and laid in a tomb. Jesus was given for us and our salvation, and all of life is bound up in him. As, as Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being, or as Jesus explained to the woman at the well of John chapter 4, he is the living water, and whoever drinks of him will never thirst again. It's very much as that great old Reformed theologian uh, John Flavel wrote. He said, Jesus is bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty, a garment to the naked, healing to the wounded, and whatever soul can desire is found in him. Amen. That is true. Well, this week we pick up, having looked at the birth of Jesus, with chapter 2, and we're going to begin with verse 21 with the mentioning of Jesus' circumcision and keep going through to verse 38. So chapter 2, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him 
to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this rich text, this rich tapestry that brings in so many themes from the Old Testament, the consolation of Israel, the hope of your people from of old, that you would make all things new, that you would bring redemption, that you would bring forth resurrection for your people. And Lord, we now live on the backside of Christ's resurrection, looking forward to our own resurrection and his second coming. We pray then that this word would be good for us, that we may be a people who wait, that we might be a people who hope in you and look to your coming. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 21 tells us that on the eighth day, when he had been circumcised in keeping with the law, that he was named Jesus, or if you want to go back to the original languages, it's Yeshua, or we would pronounce him Joshua, which means God saves. It's the name given to Mary by Gabriel before Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So, like with John the Baptist before him, God the Father, and it's not Zechariah or Joseph, named his son, setting him apart. And also like John the Baptist, uh, circumcision in accordance with the law is a detail that Luke highlights for the second time. And I covered the significance of circumcision more deeply on uh, the sermon from December 18th, if you want to go back and listen to that uh, again. Even so, let me just take a moment to summarize the importance of circumcision and why Luke would point this out again in, in the passage. Well, circumcision, which is the sign and the mark of the covenant made with Abraham, was to be given to all males born in Israel, Jew and Gentile uh, alike, or for any Gentile who worshiped Israel's God and wanted to become uh, part of Israel. So this mark and this, this ritual was to be done with each successive generation as a sign of the promise that, that this promise made to Abraham was for you, Abraham, and your children. So this goes on generation after generation. And with G Jesus, baptism replaces circumcision, and the covenant mark is given to both males and females. And it's why we rightly baptize both our children and adult converts to the faith. So the promise of Abraham, fulfilled in Jesus, is for you and your children. Well, with Moses, the law, which, of course, assumed everything that had come before it with, with Abraham, it stipulated that sons were to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. And circumcision as a sign looked forward to the promised seed of Eve and was a, a clearly visceral and tangible reminder of God's promise that from this, this lineage, uh, that, that ran from Eve through Abraham all the way through Israel right up to Jesus, that from these actual bodies, God would raise up a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. And, and that circumcision, uh, that it was performed on the eighth day, was, was not haphazard. That was important because it's an important part of the sign and what it actually looked forward to. So think of it this way. God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, the Sabbath, he rested. In turn, he commanded humanity to live by his pattern. This is his pattern for all of humanity and to structure our life and time in light of him. 
We're still called to that pattern of life to this day. Uh, the eighth day within Israelite life, look forward to new creation, to the time when God would have redeemed his creation and, of course, humanity's place in that from sin and death and looks forward to the life to come. So circumcision itself looked forward to the seed of the woman, the promised ancestor of Abraham, who would redeem his people, atoning for their sin, and in turn usher in new creation on the eighth day. And you see this same thing, not just with circumcision, but with a lot of other uh, rituals and laws within uh, the Old Testament, and Leviticus and, and other places. And again, I give a snippet of that in that sermon from the 18th if you want to, if you want to go refer to that. Now, the giving of the Spirit the circumcision of the heart and the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 are all part of this, this inbreaking of new creation. And so new covenant worship, like what we, we are enjoying right now, is inaugurated with the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, which, follow me here, on the third day, which was also the first day of the week, but it's also tied to the circumcision of the heart on the eighth day which was also the first day of the week. This is, all, this is all purposeful, right? It's all pointing to the same thing. So every Sunday, which marks the beginning of the pattern of six days plus Sabbath rest, Christians rightly see our worship in light of both the resurrection of Jesus on the third day and the new creation on the eighth day that circumcision looked forward to. So there's never been a time there's never been a time in which we, you know, living after the death and resurrection of Jesus, have not worshipped as part of that new creation. It's why Paul insists in Galatians both that, that circumcision doesn't count for anything anymore. I mean, the old covenant, as, as good as it was, has become obsolete. And why, in turn, we must understand ourselves rightly as new creations in union with Christ and the Spirit. So, so Luke's point in mentioning the circumcision of both John and Jesus was not merely that they both fulfilled the law at their births as righteous Israelites, which of course is true and is important, but that their birth signaled the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant, and in turn, the inbreaking of the new creation. So not only have we always been living in light of the new creation, that is here now, but, but clearly not yet here fully, we have always been living in what the major prophets thought of as the latter days. And again, if you want to see how this works, come to our Sunday evening study starting a couple of weeks in the book of Daniel. Okay, uh, in verses 22 through 24, we read that Mary and Joseph, after keeping the laws of purification, brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him at the temple. And what's in view here? are two important laws found in Exodus and Leviticus, respectively. So, in Leviticus 12, uh, a woman who had conceived and born a son was considered unclean for seven days. And on the eighth day, her son was to be circumcised. And Mary and Joseph do this in verse 21, in the same way that we, we see with John the Baptist earlier in Luke. Over the course of the next 33 days, or for a total of 40 days, counted from the birth of the son, she was still considered unclean, and while she could resume her typical daily life, she was not to come into contact with anything 
holy or enter the sanctuary until the days of her purifying was completed. Now, there's a lot there, and I'm, I'm not going to take the time to explain all the nuances uh, involved with this, let alone Levitical law, but uh, unclean versus clean had nothing to do with hygiene. It had nothing to do with hygiene, nor was it the case that unclean versus clean necessarily was a distinction between bad versus good, or evil versus good, or sinful versus pure. Sometimes, but not always. So for example, a lion was considered an unclean animal and unsuitable as an animal to be brought for sacrifice. And yet Judah, and in turn Jesus, was compared to a lion. You know, clearly lions are, are noble creatures, uh, and yet, you know, Revelation 5 sees Jesus as the Lion of Judah, who was also the Lamb who was slain, right? So with this particular law, I think Alistair Roberts is right in pointing out that it spoke not to hygiene, but to both the blessing and beauty of childbirth, but also the fallenness that had come to be a part of it too. That is, childbirth has both life and death associated with it now because of the fall. So in many places in scripture, women are likened to a life-giving fountain or, or springs. And the blood of menstruation and the blood in childbirth is, is an uncovering of that fountain. This is why there are, are similar laws involving men and emissions. There is both life and death represented in such moments. So, though this law seems weird and perhaps even misogynistic to some modern readers, it actually takes a very high view of women as the givers of life and the glory of men, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, even as it points to the curse of Genesis 3 and how there is pain and suffering and death involved in life as well. So, What's really, this is really an aside, what's really interesting about just this law, and you can see this in other places too, are that women are neither worshipped, like what you saw in ancient fertility cults, and thus a woman post-birth cannot enter the temple during this 40-day wilderness time, but neither are women devalued, as if women, a woman's value is merely to provide children. That's just an aside. So after 40 days, uh, the time between the birth of the son and the rites of purification, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple in obedience to Exodus 13. In Exodus 13, 1, God commands, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast. Jesus is the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph. So they, so they rightly take him to the temple, much as Hannah uh, took Samuel, and they consecrate him to God. That is, they set him apart, much like a, a Nazarite vow. And they say, essentially, this is what this commandment is about. It's saying, all I have is yours, including the gift of children. And so if you want to know, among other reasons, and the reasons are, are many for why God took the firstborn of all Egypt, it's essentially, they said, we will not worship. What we have is ours and not yours. We will keep what we think is ours. And he said, fine, if you will not consecrate your children to me, I will. So either Israel could consecrate their children or not. And it's a vision of either life 
or death. Verse 24 tells us that they, they came to offer a sacrifice. And again, this is Leviticus 12 and related to the post-birth purification. And that, that sacrifice was part of Mary's atonement. And they, they offered turtle doves or two, or two young pigeons, which was the offering of those who could not afford the better sacrifice of a lamb. So consider what's in view here. And again, you have to read all of this as a line together, right? It's been 70 weeks from the pronouncement or from the announcement to Zechariah by Gabriel while he was serving in the holy place in the temple. Remember that. That's early in chapter 1. And remember, the announcement to Zechariah is very similar to Gabriel's announcement to Daniel, somewhat, six, seven hundred years before that, that God would return to his, simple, his temple excuse me, after 70 weeks, and that time was about to be fulfilled. That's what Gabriel essentially says to Zechariah. That time is coming. It's also been 40 days since Mary gave birth to Jesus, and here Jesus, the Son of God, enters his temple, or as he says, his father's house, as he'll describe it in 249, in fulfillment of the law and prophecy. So what Daniel longed to see was happening right in this moment. So the new Adam, God's son, has entered the sanctuary. He's gone back to where Adam could no longer go. The promised king and better David has come into the temple. And as Arthur Just, the commentator, puts out, puts it, he says, Jesus' parents are keeping the Torah, that is the law, they are also fulfilling the law by bringing Jesus to his true home. Now, as just a quick aside, the note about Jesus' parents bringing the cheaper sacrifice continues on a theme uh, throughout these first two chapters, really throughout all the Gospels, that God revealed himself to the weak and the lowly of this world. And we'll see that with Simeon and, and Anna too. But in another sense, Mary and Joseph brought the most precious lamb ever to be seen in the temple. Because even at 40 days old, Jesus is very much the perfect lamb of God set apart and brought to the temple for sacrifice. Well, in verses 25 through 35, we read about Simeon, who was righteous and devout and filled with the Holy Spirit and who was waiting on the consolation of Israel. That is, he was waiting on God to comfort, that's to console, to comfort his people through his promised Messiah. And like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Simeon and, and Anna, who we'll get to in a minute, represent the end of the old covenant as they await the Lord to act and bring about Israel's redemption. And both Simeon and Anna are they're good and, and faithful Israelites. And at least with Anna, though it's, it's hinted at and kind of implied with, with Simeon too, we know she had spent her life in watchful anticipation and was now an old woman. As we've mentioned before, these weren't the only people who thought uh, God would act soon. Many people in Israel, in a variety of ways, anticipated and expected the coming of the Messiah at this time. And Anna proclaims Jesus to some of those people in our passage. It's also notable that, that though this moment happens in the temple, which is the center of Israelites' life, 
Neither the high priest or any of Israel's leadership were involved in this moment. But rather, it's to faithful, nobody Israelites that God announces Israel's king to. Now, the detail about Simeon being filled with the Holy Spirit is yet another indication that the new creation was breaking into the world. And we've already seen the Spirit at work all over these two chapters. And this is, you just have to, if you just go read through the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is there. He tends to be located on a few individuals here and there that are set apart, like, say, David or Elijah or something like that. Here in the beginning of, of Luke, the Holy Spirit is all over the place. It's, it's like the deluge has just opened up, and, it is, and they're, they're, you know, they're drinking from the fire hose or something like that. Right? And all of this is, is in anticipation of the new creation, that it's, it's happening. And we've already seen this with, with John the Baptist being filled with the Spirit from the womb, Mary being overshadowed by the Spirit, Elizabeth being filled with the Spirit and recognizing the Messiah in Mary's womb, Zechariah being filled with the Spirit at the birth of his son John. And here, again, we read that Simeon, in what looks forward to and anticipates Pentecost, and the inbreaking of Jeremiah 31 is filled with the Spirit as well. Luke tells us that it had been revealed to Simeon by the Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And Luke emphasizes throughout these, these chapters, he just repeats these words. He emphasizes seeing throughout these chapters. So, for example, the shepherds heard the announcement of the angel of the Lord, believed him, and went and saw the Messiah, in turn proclaiming what they had seen and heard. Here, Simeon was promised that he would see the Messiah, and through the Spirit, immediately recognizes him, despite Jesus being an ordinary baby to nobody parents. That's what he appeared to be. And, and it, it takes him, in turn, Simeon takes Jesus in his arms and blesses God, that is, he gives thanks and says, you are wonderful and amazing, in response. Now, as an aside, as just a quick aside, this is a, a moment, just a flash of a moment, demonstrating Jesus' humility and how he is gentle and lowly. I mean, think about it. The one through whom and for whom all things were made, not merely consented to become one of us. In his love for us, he did things like allowing Simeon to take him in his arms. Think on that now. See the picture. This old man taking this baby Jesus in his arms and blessing his name. It's incredible. It's incredible. That's our king. That's our God. Now, of course, not many moms, I don't think, would allow a perfect stranger to hold their baby, but this shows us something about Jesus. He wasn't merely for Mary. He was for the world. He is a gift for the world. Now, Simeon says in response, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared the presence, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon can now die in peace. He can now die in peace because he knows in this life and the next, his salvation has come through this child. 
So like Moses and Elijah at Jesus' transfiguration, where they're talking to him about his coming death and resurrection, the hope of the world, and the, re- the reason we can look beyond our circumstances and, and the trials in this life and have hope that our death you know, or, or, or our suffering or our failures and sin is not the end of us or will permanently define us, it's found in him. Simeon didn't see Jesus die. Simeon didn't see him resurrected from the dead. And yet, he had confidence, he had hope that his life, this is exactly like Hebrews 11, though he did not see everything fulfilled, he knew God would do it. And this child, this Messiah, as, as Simeon through the Spirit says, will be both for the Jews and the Gentiles. He will bring light and the revelation of God to the Gentiles. That is, he will bring the pagan nations out of the darkness of Babel and restore them to himself, even as he's the glory of God, the glory of Israel come in the flesh. But this Messiah is not without controversy. Simeon says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So many will turn to Jesus and find life, much like what we see here with Simeon and Anna, but many would reject him and find death. Mary, as as Simeon, filled with the Spirit, sees her in this moment, stands as a symbol, really, of Israel. And, And John sees her this way, too, in Revelation 12. And so it's not merely Mary's soul that would be pierced, though clearly, I have to imagine, watching her son throughout his ministry, let alone watching him die on the cross, which she did, would be excruciating. It's more so that Israel, Israel would be divided over Jesus, just as the world is now divided over Jesus. So it's like when the Sanhedrin, for example, the supposed righteous ones and the righteous leadership of Israel said to Pilate, his blood, that is Jesus' blood, be on us. And our children, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus has a way of revealing the hidden thoughts of people, despite their supposed righteous veneer. And don't you know, everyone you know is trying to put on a righteous veneer of some kind. See, Jesus is either the rock of ages and the chief cornerstone, or he is a stumbling block against which people crash and are destroyed. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There's no lukewarmness with him. Many Americans mistakenly think that they can be on the fence with Jesus, taking or leaving him as they see fit, but that's, that's simply not so. Jesus is either your God and your king, or he is not. And sooner or later, our inner thoughts and true allegiances will become apparent. Well, with verse 36, Luke turns his attention briefly to Anna, who was also in the temple at that time. And we read that Anna had been married seven years, uh, was widowed, presumably without children or family, and in turn had taken refuge in the temple. And up to that, that moment, at the age of 84, so the vast majority of her life, was living a life of prayer and fasting in anticipation of the coming Messiah. And she is yet another picture of the faithful remnant of Israel coming really from the lineage of Daniel practically waiting on God to act 
And like with previous, the previous section with the angel of the Lord and the shepherds who are paired together, we're meant to take Simeon and Anna as a pair together. Simeon functions very much like the angel of the Lord with, with the shepherds, announcing the gospel of this child in the temple. So from 40 days old, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being announced about him in his temple. Not unlike who, you know, Adam was, himself was supposed to proclaim the word of God to his wife Eve in the temple, in the sanctuary. Anna is very much like the shepherds who heard this word about the Christ and believed and in turn told all those who were waiting, like her, on the redemption of Israel about it. She's very much like Lady Wisdom of Proverbs, a new Eve offering words of life to whoever wants it. And the striking difference between the shepherds and Anna was that the shepherds proclaimed Jesus' birth, Anna proclaimed Jesus' death. She proclaimed his death, that is the redemption he would bring for his people because there is no redemption without someone atoning for it. As Arthur just again points out, Simeon and Anna are like the required two witnesses of numbers in Deuteronomy, as in, no one shall be put to death by one witness, but by two. And they both give public notice in the temple as witnesses to the Messiah that he was, to come, he was to come to give his life as a ransom for many and the redemption for those who would otherwise die in their sin. Now, <laughs> I've thrown a lot at you this morning, and that's on purpose because Luke throws a lot at us. And because Scripture is such a, a rich feast, and I want you to see just how good it is and how deep uh, it, it goes. But at the most basic level, at the most basic level, Luke is teaching teaching us the pattern of life with God. God is faithful in all he does. He is faithful in all he does. What he promises, he will provide. Like with the covenant with Abraham, he says he will do it all. He himself will fulfill the demands of the law. And here, we already see him doing it. The Son of God comes into his temple, his house, to fulfill the law and to provide his life as a ransom for many who cannot. The proper response to this, like we have seen multiple times already in Luke, is receiving this gift with thanksgiving. It's receiving this gift with thanksgiving. And that is at the very heart of the Lord's Supper, of what we're getting ready to celebrate. You know, with the Lord's Supper, here's what you should see. You should see the Son of God given for us, his life, his body, his blood, his death, his resurrection as a ransom for our atonement. We who are both his image bearers, fearfully and wonderfully made, yet marred by sin and death, as the laws of purification so poignantly symbolize, we are in need of atonement. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal that reminds us that life is only found in God. In him, we live and we move and we have our being. And without his indwelling through the Spirit, this is why we eat this sign, why we take it into ourselves, and we don't merely look at it or think about it. Without our literal union with him, we are dead. In this meal, we see our utter dependence on him. I mean, after all, with every meal you eat, every meal you eat, your body testifies 
to how you do not have life in yourself. All of us are dependent on something outside of us to give us life. None of us are self-sustaining creatures. But Jesus does not merely offer us the barest of nutrients. He takes the raw materials of his creation and he fashions it into bread and wine, the cultivated work of the ground and the fruit of the vine, and provides a feast for us who he calls his family and friends. As both Simeon and John, uh, the apostle, enjoyed, our God comes near and he embraces us. And like those two men enjoyed with God in the flesh, so will we. One day, he will embrace us fully with human arms, and we will know him as Simeon knew him. So for good reason, the Lord's Supper is called the Eucharist. The Eucharist, it is a meal of thanksgiving to our God for all he has given to us. So rightly, with every meal, it is the Christian practice that we pray first, giving thanks for what God has continued to give us day in, day out, all of our lives. So too, with this meal, we give thanks for the life we have in him. So like Elizabeth and Mary and Zechariah and the shepherds and Simeon and Anna, let us join together in thanksgiving for what God has done for us in Christ. Let us partake of the lamb laid in the manger, sacrificed for us in our salvation, wrapped in linen and laid in a tomb, who has circumcised our hearts, poured his spirit into us, and has already given us new creation as we await, like Simeon and Anna, with hope and thanksgiving on the resurrection of our bodies. Luke 2 is incredible because it points to how faithful and good our God is. So let me pray for us as we enter into this beautiful ritual he has given to us. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you. There is no God so full of loving kindness and faithfulness to creatures who are so full of rebellion. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your faithfulness that will never, ever end. We pray all of this in our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.